My name is Brian Duzay. I am a left behind parent in a parental child abduction case that is now 12 and a half years old. I have not seen my daughter in five years and three months. And this is my story. Hi, Brian. First of all, thank you for doing this podcast with us. I've checked out your website where you have documented very well your case and your daily journal since your daughter Samantha got kidnapped by your ex-wife Adriana. People who are listening might not know the whole story and I would like to talk about what has happened so far since it's been a long journey for you. If I'm not wrong, it's almost uh, 13 years now and you're still fighting to see your daughter again. With that said, Let's start with talking about what kind of dad you wanted to be before you got married. I believe this is an important indicator on what type of person are you and it will help our listeners to understand who is Brian Desert. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Yeah, I didn't know what kind of a, a husband I wanted to be. You know what I wanted to be? is just, I wanted to be a great human being. And I didn't feel like I was there yet. I felt like I had my own head trash. Uh, I, I also was obviously as confident as I was that I knew I was going to make it. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't confident about where I was going in life. I didn't know what I wanted to do with life and until I figured that out. Um, I didn't know what kind of a husband I was even capable of being. I know how I didn't want it. I had perfect examples. I don't know. I, I had friends who had kids pretty early in their 20s. Uh, maybe mid twenties, uh, and I and I and I, and how they embrace that role in their twenties. Uh, I could never be that person, so I was really more focused on me and getting myself together. Uh, I didn't have a a vision, and I always felt okay. I, I'm not even going to worry about this scenario until I'm at least thirty. Right. So that's so I spent the rest of my twenties getting my act together from a professional standpoint, personal standpoint this, that, and the other, where that really was not much of a thought until I, I was in my early 30s. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really want to bring a child into the world under such chaotic circumstances. So I wanted to make sure my environment was as uh, squared away and healthy before I even thought about bringing a, a human being into the world. So I didn't have an ideal concept of what that meant. What I did know was that uh, it, you know, if, if, the, if the day came where I was going to become a dad, uh, there is no way that uh, I will be in a position to ever put a child in the, in the, in the position that I was in growing up. There's, there's, that absolutely was a promise I made to myself. Uh, you know, when you're in long-term relationships, you start having those conversations with, with the person you're in a relationship with. And, and we had those conversations and they completely got it. In bad scenarios, all of a sudden now you have kids maybe when you shouldn't have had kids. And now you're imparting all that, that, that head trash on your kids and they're absorbing it, whether it's verbal or nonverbal or kids are like a sponge, man. They, they will pick up the slightest character flaw or even the, the character strengths. 
even if you won't even know it happened. And then they were mimicking that behavior. It's something I just absolutely wanted to have more control over in terms of being the best person and being the best human being I could be, but being the best man I could be. And that will translate into me being the best father I can be. I already understood sacrifice and I already understood work ethic. I understood what all that meant. I did until you have a kid for the first time, you don't know what that means to be a parent until you're actually a parent. I thought I did. I read all the books. You know, back then I was signed up on all the websites and I'm getting all this great information. And it, man, uh, until Samantha was born, I had n- no clue that I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so, and that's, that's kind of how I view that. Now that we know what type of father or better yet, what type of human you wanted to be, Let's dive deeper into Adriana and your relationship with her. How did you guys meet and how was your relationship with her? Well, we, we actually were never married. We were actually engaged. Uh, we, were, we did things a little bit. Uh, we, didn't go, we didn't necessarily go by the script. When her, her and I met in 2005, and it was an instant connection. There was chemistry. There was no denying the chemistry. Everybody who knew us back then knew it. You know, we finished finish each other's sentences. Uh, it's just one of those things where it just, uh, it felt comfortable and it felt, if it, I won't say easy, I will say simple. It was simple because I didn't, you know, you don't have to explain it. The goal for her and I was the same. We, we didn't want to, we didn't want to leave each other's side. So, you know, for a couple of years, for your first year and a half, that's what it was like. Uh, we're on the phone in, in elongated conversation or, or elongated text messaging. Or back then we had instant messenger or whatever the case might be, right? I was in my mid-30s and I was questioning whether or not uh, the father thing was going to actually happen. And so on my 35th birthday, I went to the doctor and said, I don't really have much prospects. Uh, you know, and I don't really want to start raising kids in my 40s. And so, you know, in California, you have to go through a process to uh, go through the, the, the vasectomy treatments, the things that they can do for men uh, from, the, from that standpoint. And I was pretty sure that, that was, I was okay. I, was, I would have been okay getting married and, and being a husband and all that, but I didn't want to start raising kids in my 40s. So I, I went through the process. And in California, it's a little bit of a process. Like, and I actually got the surgery done when I was 35. And uh, here I am. <laughs> Right after that, I meet Samantha's mom, and I'm thinking, okay, we're, you know, and next thing you know, she tells me, she tells me she's pregnant, and she is, she's absolutely stoked because she didn't know that I actually had the surgery done, and it, we weren't really, we never had conversations about having a family together, so it didn't wasn't a topic that came up, and so when I told her, she she got a little defensive. Because she thought I was gonna, uh, I was, I was, I was actually gonna accuse her of, of not being faithful, and that wasn't the case at all. I, there's a little bit of irony to the story because that is how my brother was born. <laughs> I said, if you notice, there is a pretty significant gap between me and my sister, and then there's my brother, <laughs> and then that same exact. So apparently, we have some strong swimmers in uh, my side of the family, and she could not. Stop laughing. I mean, as well as you can imagine, you know, she was relieved to know that I didn't even think that 
uh, you know, there was infidelity going on. Uh, she heard the story. She couldn't stop laughing. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I, it's kind of like it was one of those things where my, you know, my mom got angry and wanted to sue the hospital and all this other stuff. And then, you know, my dad was like, uh, yeah, we shouldn't probably sue the hospital. I'm, you know, we're, we're and, and, and my brother is awesome. I mean, he, uh, you know, he was, he was mama's boy from day one even though my mom was not happy that this was going down. She, she embraced him better than she was able to embrace my, my sister and I, which was, which was pretty cool. So uh, all's well that ends well, but that's, yeah. So we, we got thrust into it. We did things a little bit unorthodox and we, we, we realized that, but we were also mature enough to know, you know, we're, we're in this for the long haul. And, uh, you know, we, we agreed on a name, like it was like an instant thing. Well, if it's a boy, what do you think? And then we were doing that sort of one, two, three, go. And then we would say the same thing. So we both had a name picked out if we were going to have a son. We had Samantha picked out uh, if we were going to have a daughter. Obviously, we had a daughter. I mean, it was just one of those instant chemistry type situations. I mean, we were, I was actually, the more we got involved with her pre-pregnancy care, I'll call it, right? The more I got involved with that with her, the more I got excited. And I start. I, I embraced the role right away, but I, I started to see. Okay, this is real. This is real, right? So, honestly, from what you're saying, it sounds like an amazing relationship. You have made me super curious about what or how did it go wrong? Did you see any red flags along the way, or it was a sudden thing? There wasn't one moment that I can point to where I said, "Okay, there's some red flags." Okay, looking back in hindsight being what it is, there were a lot of, there were a lot of little things that added up. Well, I don't, I didn't know what it meant for someone to be a sociopath or a narcissist, right? I mean, you get, you get kind of an idea what a narcissist is from movies and TV shows and stuff like that. I can't say I really, I didn't know any of them. Maybe I did. I just didn't, I didn't recognize it or didn't. The little, the little things were, um, how do they treat other people? Do they, uh, do they have a healthy respect for the opposite sex? Which in some cases wasn't the case. You know, she's got kind of, uh, she never talked good about any of her exes. She didn't talk very good about her, her father. Even though her father and I, we had, an, we had a great relationship. Uh, so that's a whole nother story. Does, does she take responsibility for her actions? And while, yes, she's a very smart girl, she was the first one in her family to finish school. But how responsible are you with, with the things that you're, you're doing in life? Are you accountable for the things that you've done in life, whether it's good or bad? So there were some questionable moments. Can you humble yourself enough to apologize for things? You know, I noticed there was a pattern of just little things. Like if you, you know, well, why did you, why are you acting out over this? It seems kind of minor to me. Or, you know, you catch them in a lie instead of just owning, owning the mistake in the first place. As they say, the cover-up is always worse than the crime itself. Those were the little things I started seeing and I wasn't necessarily comfortable with that. One Halloween, Samantha wanted to get dressed up and, 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 uh, and go out trick-or-treating. And she was really excited about it. Uh, she had a little, uh, little, kids witch costume you know for kids she was wearing it around the house and then you know she noticed all the kids you know trick-or-treating wanted to go and her and you know her mother said no i'm not going to take you 
And so I said, okay, well, you know, I, I, it wasn't an arguable kind of a request. So I said, all right, I'll, no big deal. I'll, I'll even put on something stupid and we'll, I'll, I'll come out and we'll trick or treat with you. So she was, she was completely happy, giggling, you know, doing the kid thing. And we get down the street, uh, maybe about a half a block down the street, and she comes running after us. And the first thing out of her mouth was, I can't have you showing me up like that. So I was like, well, I, I didn't really look at it that way. She wanted to go trick-or-treating, you know, what's the big deal? And so that was kind of one of those moments um, where her image meant everything to her, regardless of what was going on behind the scenes. And it was the first time I had seen that. Right. I see what you're trying to say by red flags. Now, do you remember when you realized that the relationship is over? Yeah, it's about eight months before Samantha's abduction. She went on a trip to Spain for three months. Mm-hmm. Now, she's got, a, she's got a son from another relationship, and he's a great kid. The age difference between her son and Sam is, I want to say, nine and a half to ten years. So, you know, he's at this point, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's just getting into junior high school. She decided to ditch all of us for... She told. She didn't even tell anybody she was doing this. Now, at the time, we had we had Sam, we had her son, we had a cousin. One of her cousins was staying with us because her mom was going through uh, cancer treatments, and then we had uh, Adriana's mother. They were all staying with us, and then uh, she tells me two days before she's going to Spain that she's going to Spain, and apparently she had. Uh, modeling gig in Spain and she was only going to be gone for two weeks. And I'm like, okay, I would have been nice to have a little more runway on that. Uh, so we can prepare, uh, what do we, you know, what do I need to do for, for your son? What do I need to do for your, for your, uh, cousin? All these things, right? Oh, no, my mom will handle it. Well, does your mom know that? <laughs> you know, she doesn't seem to think that you're going anywhere, you know, <laughs> just by talking to her. You know, she, we had her flight information. We had all this stuff. We saw her off. And then two weeks later, we go to the airport. Uh, long story short, she never got on the plane. Didn't call. Didn't text anybody. Didn't email anybody. We sat at the airport for three hours because there were a couple other flights uh, that she could have been on. So we, we waited it out. And when, when that last flight came, we, the airlines felt really bad. Finally, they just told us she never got on the plane in Spain. Her mother was absolutely livid, as was everybody else. Because uh, now we're like, well, did something happen? Nobody's heard from her. Uh, what's going on? And then finally, she's, she you know, said that the, the job took her to Mallorca or the job took her to Barcelona or whatever, right? So I'm like, something's not right here. Something's not added up. So I had friends in, uh, you know, I was in the software business. I had some friends that were in the entertainment business. And I, in a roundabout way, I was asking them, when you guys do work overseas for great film shoots of any kind, you're using models or whatever, what's that process like? Right? And they told me, they're like, well, she's got to have a card. Uh, there'll be documentation of her work. She's got to pay, you know, that sort of thing. And most of these jobs are union, union-based, depending on where they are and what they're doing. But yeah, mostly they'll have some sort of modeling guild or actors guild behind them. So I, I got kind of an understanding of well, what should I look for when we do finally have this conversation about what the heck happened over there. I mean, finally, she's like, well, I'm, my, my job got extended. 
I'm going to be here another two or three weeks or whatever the case might be. So yeah, at the end of the day, it was, it was a three month trip where she rarely talked to any of us when she came home. I wanted to go into it right then and there, but I, my gut was telling me it's not the time. I didn't want her. She was already defensive, uh, had that defensive demeanor about her. I didn't want to add to it by putting her in that defensive mode. I said, look, let's go get something. Let's just have a good time and let's just relax. And then we talk about this tomorrow. And then so the next day came and I mean, what kind of work were you doing? I mean, you had to have had documentation of work, no pictures, no guild cards, no nothing. Then it became pretty clear what there. I mean, she she eventually came out and said she had met somebody there. You know, she wasn't sure if she wanted to come up. That was that was like okay. Well, finally, we'll finally being honest about. It. But as we found out after Samantha's abduction, that trip uh, was actually a lot more than just her meeting someone and then you know jetting off with him for a couple of weeks. And we'll get into that down the down the road here a little bit. But uh, but that was the time, and I was like, look. We can get past all this if you're just honest, you know? Tell me what made you want to go to Spain and abandon your family for three months. Uh, what did I, how, how, what did, what did I do to cause this? Because obviously you were not happy with me. I never saw this coming. Uh, that was the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, her mother and her dad tried to reason with her. And then, uh, you know, it, it looked like it was working. It looked like we were able to start patching things up. Uh, but little did I know, she was scheming for the next, you know, few months to uh, to do what she did. I mean, she basically just stole everything out of the house. She had the whole thing meticulously planned. She she ransacked the entire house the day that uh, she abducted Samantha. Yeah, so uh, we'll take a step back a little bit because I was teaching her son how to rollerblade. And so I was showing him how to skate on rollerblades. It was easier for him to skate with a hockey stick in his hand so he could keep his balance a little bit easier. Uh, and then, then he started, you know, as kids do, you know, oh, hey, I got this. Lick mom, no hands. And then didn't see the rear end of the car parked on the side of the street. And I don't mean to laugh, but it was funny because he, he started laughing when he hit the car because it was a pretty loud, loud thud. And he's laughing, so I figured, okay, I'm laughing with him, not not at him or against him. And then uh, he goes to lean his arm to to lift himself up so he can stand up. Um, and he his wrist was broken. Found out real quick is he broke his wrist on in the, the crash. And uh, so we take him, we get him to emergency care. Uh, he gets the cast and. It was the first time he had broken any bones. And we were like, oh, this is the, you got a, quite a story to tell all your classmates and all the girls and all this other stuff. And he, now he's getting real excited. You know, <laughs> it was kind of one of those things. So a couple of weeks later, uh, Adriana tells me that she's got to take him out of town to go see a relative who's a plastic surgeon because the wrist isn't healing right. I'm like, well, how can you tell if the wrist is healing, right? Because it's in a cast. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys sweet vision or something? How do you know? And, I, and we asked, I asked, I asked her son, are you feeling any discomfort? And he goes, I can't move it, obviously. He says, but other than it itching, because it's been, it's been on for a couple of weeks, I'm, I feel okay. I said, well, you know, if you're comfortable with it, and, you know, your husband or your husband, your, uh, your relative was a distant uncle. Uh, if they could point you in another direction you're comfortable with, well, I, I mean, I can't, I can't argue with that. So yeah, sounds good to me. And that was her ruse to keep me at bay 
Uh, so I didn't suspect what they were really doing. So two days before Sam was abducted, she, she fakes going on this trip. She's like, hey, and she's emailing me. She's texting me, be a good boy. Uh, can't wait to see you when we get back, blah, 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 blah. The whole nine yards. And the, the, one thing about Adriana, she always, always had a way of telling you what she was really going to do if you pay attention and read between the lines. And uh, so, yeah, you mentioned, you referenced the blog and what you would have, you see on the blog are, are the actual emails and text messages that she sent me when she made that trip. Uh, and knowing what you know now, it, it, the hair will literally stand on its edge because she's literally telling you that she is going to abduct your kid. And you don't see it at the time because that's not what the messages say literally. So like stuff like uh, tomorrow, we're very nervous. Tomorrow is a big day for us. You know, stuff like that. I mean, it's in between the line stuff. And when you know somebody really well and you start seeing those patterns, be a good boy was code for I'm doing something that you're not going to like. I, I, every time, every time I, I, she would tell me that, every time she wrote it in a text, every time she wrote it in an email, I learned really quickly. It had nothing to do her being joking, you know, or playful by saying, be a good, good boy, being a good boy, man, I'm going to, I'm doing something you're not going to like. And so that was code. And when you start picking up those codes, uh, you read into those messages. And after we're done with this conversation, uh, and you do read them, I, I'm telling you, you're, the hair is going to stand up on your arms because it's pretty chilling. I'm like, I, I, and at the time I'm thinking everything's normal. Now she, I'm a pretty meticulous planner, pretty good with managing my time, but I, I, I value time. And so I planned out my days, I planned out my weeks, I planned out my months and get the things done I need to get done. And she knew that. She knew it. Uh, she planned for it. Because every Monday, uh, I, was, I was always taking, I was doing, always doing the day trip up to downtown Los Angeles. And uh, that, that Monday uh, was no different. And what was weird about that Monday uh, it was yeah November 10th, 2008. Um, I woke up, made pancakes. Samantha smells the pancakes. Uh, she told me the night before she wanted me to make blueberry pancakes. You know, Adriana's mom, her alarm went off. And then she grabs Sam. And Sam's still in her pajamas. She grabs Sam. She grabs uh, the cousin and, and the son because she made up some excuse how they had to register for some classes. And I'm like, well, all right. You know, I didn't think much of it. Sam didn't want to go. She's like, I want to, I want to stay and help dad make pancakes. She's a, and she told her, you'll eat the pancakes when you get back. So I, I'm not thinking twice about it. As she buckles Sam in, in the back of the car, in the car seat in the back, as she stops the car, as she pulls out of the driveway, and she stops, and, and she, I could see her turn the head, and she's telling Sam, I, I'm, I'm assuming she told Sam to wave goodbye or blow me kisses or something, because that's exactly what Sam did. Uh, and that was the last time I, I saw her in quite some time. I, I didn't know that at the time. And then I, I went up on my way. Uh, I get back. It's about 10.30 at night. And the one thing I noticed right away was the sensor uh, for the light that lights up the driveway at night was off. That thing never goes off. It's solar powered. So somehow they found a way to disable it. And I'm thinking, oh boy, 
uh, the, the second thing I noticed right away was all the lights were off in the house, which wouldn't have been completely unusual because Sam went to bed early, obviously, as a, as a baby. Um, but her mother kept late hours. She was always watching the telenovelas and, you know, the, a light should have been on because I knew uh, she wouldn't miss any of those TV shows. So I, I'm like, I got a bad feeling about what's going on here. The garage door didn't work. Uh, so I had to manually open the garage door, pull the truck in, leave the lights on because there's no lights in the house. As soon as I walked in, SK, my stomach, uh, my heart just dropped right into my stomach. I mean, the house was empty and you, it, they were in a hurry. Uh, there was nothing there. And we had a cat. I treated the cat like a kid. You know, he was like my son. <laughs> and so I, I'm running around the house yelling, you know, Samantha's name. Maybe they left her in the closet. Maybe they left her in the bathroom. Maybe they left her wherever. Um, and then I hear the cat scratching at the door trying to get out. That's actually kind of significant, uh, as I would find out later on. Yeah, I mean, I'm standing, now I'm standing in my master bedroom with no furniture. And I, I'm completely frozen. And then all of a sudden, I hear one of the neighbors, because uh, I'm in hysterics at this point. And uh, I, one of the neighbors had ran over to, I can hear him yelling my name. And I'm standing still. I am dead silent standing in my room because you know, I don't know if somebody's in there waiting for me. You know, uh, that was my original thought. And so I had two choices to do. We're gonna we're gonna do battle. I'm gonna jump out this window. Those are my only two options at this point. I finally got my senses enough where I recognized the voice, and you know, he was uh, he was obviously a friendly. He was a, he was a neighbor and stuff. And he, he's like, "Yeah, we saw we saw we saw them move. We saw the whole thing. In fact, this guy's wife approached Adriana and asked her, oh, I didn't know you guys were moving.' And she's like, "Yeah, we're moving into a bigger house." And that was that. It seemed all above board. But he's like, yeah, there were uh, three trucks. They didn't have the traditional uh, you know, moving people. This was done in, in haste because later on we would find out she was afraid of what was going to happen if I, if I drove up on them. Uh, and the story about the cat is I found out later that one of the guys helping them move wanted to either kill the cat or let the cat go. And she's like, if you do that, he will... He will hunt the four corners of the earth to find you. <laughs> Do not touch a single hair on that cat. Because he will know. And, uh, you know, I just the, the audacity to even think that harming an animal, let alone doing what you're doing already, was, was an acceptable. But I guess if you're, if you're in that frame of mind where you're going to do something as heinous as this, why not add an animal to it? You know, so um, I remember calling the police. I remember uh, the police got there really quickly. Um, I called I called a friend of mine who's an attorney, uh, just trying to get some advice on where to go, what to do. Uh, he recommended I get a hold of the, the, uh, the consulate in uh, uh, the Mexican consulate in, in San Diego or LA, whoever I can get a hold of, let, let them know what's going on, start that process there. Um, state, local, and uh, federal. Uh, we're all sitting in my house for the next eight hours, sifting through whatever was left to try and figure out where they were headed with all that stuff. And the one thing that made sense, which I didn't think about at the time, was that uh, you know the the FBI was told me, well, they're not 
they're not going very far if they got three truckloads of your stuff in it. First thing they did was uh, they talked to the neighbor. Uh, I guess they they cleaned out the house in less than five hours. And then, so their hunch was that they, yeah, they went, they, they're in Tijuana. Uh, and sure enough, they saw the trucks uh, on, on different traffic cams in Tijuana. Now, you know, Tijuana is not a small city. It's a big city. And uh, you can easily hide there if you really want to. And so, you know, now the State Department is on it. They're they're monitoring, you know, the police are monitoring credit cards and monitoring phones, uh, all that stuff. And before the sun rose, we knew within a five square mile radius of where they were. And uh, without that initial action, uh, I'm not sure how the story ends up. I can tell you one thing. Uh, I wouldn't be in the position I am in now and the where it kind of was the the catalyst for how this this whole story unfolded in the 12 years since. Can you explain a bit about how the first few days was for you? I understand you must have been shocked to your call and I'm asking this specifically so that people who are listening can understand the kind of pain, trauma or just the horrible state of mind that a parent goes through when all these things happen to them. Uh, I didn't sleep for four days. Those first four days, I didn't get one one minute of sleep. I wanted to get a grasp of the situation first. So my first priority was surrounding myself with people that could be of immediate help to me right now. What I didn't want was a distraction of having all these other people who, who really couldn't help me put together uh, the right team and help stabilize the situation. I had enough wherewithal to do that. Um, so that was my, that, that's what those first four days were. I knew I was running on fumes after three days of not sleeping. I wasn't really eating. Kind of forced myself to, you know, take in some protein shakes, but uh, it was a lot of coffee involved, a lot of cold showers and a lot of coffee. Uh, and that's what got me through, you know, those, that first week. It was just one of those things. I, I, the funny part was it wasn't until I, I, I started establishing relationships inside the State Department where I got, I finally realized what I was dealing with because I never heard of the term parental abduction before. I'd never heard of the term uh, parental alienation. I didn't even know what any of that meant. You know, I didn't even know if that was a thing. And sure enough, you know, um, if the State Department has statistics galore on both scenarios. You know, and they, and they, this is, and I'm like, okay, so this is, I felt a little bit better knowing that this was, this was unique, obviously, to me. It's certainly not a unique scenario to most federal governments. So, I mean, as it, it's, it's bad as that sounds, there's a little bit of relief when you, you were so uh, oblivious to the fact that this could even happen in the first place. So, I did a complete 180 in terms of my, uh, my angst, my angst levels dropped considerably knowing, all right, there are people out there that understand how to handle this situation. Uh, so I need to get, we need to find out who those people are and build a team around it because this is way above my head, you know? So that was, that was kind of how the first 10 days was. The State Department turned me on to uh, my wonderful legal team that has been with me ever since. You know, they, they go through a pretty serious vetting process to be tied into the State Department. And so I felt comfortable with that. And then knowing the ins and outs of not just our legal system, but now I got to deal with, 
I got to deal with Mexico's legal system. I know nothing about it, right? Um, I don't know how the system works. Uh, I did. I do know that they they signed the Hague, but I also know they have an absolute horrid history with it, which was interesting in how what I was being told inside the State Department and how to deal with this uh, from from the State Department's perspective, and they also understood Mexico's perspective and what was the best course of action to go go through down there. But uh, yeah, it was for me. It was so important to build uh, the right team around you. You know, people that knew way more about this than me, um, and you know, it, this I knew this was not going to be easy. Uh, everyone was telling me it's not the fact that they were in Mexico; it's the fact that this happened in the first place. She could have, she could have went to anywhere and hid. It didn't really matter. This is going to be a tough, tough. Everything that the State Department has predicted was going to happen has absolutely happened. Having those kind of people around you to Make sure your expectations for what is happening versus what you think should happen is so important. You find yourself as, as a father uh, or a parent in general, any left-behind parent, uh, you, you want things to move at a lightning pace because you know, you're, uh, you know, you're, we're dealing with a child's life here. And uh, it, but the, the system just does not move the way you think it. So you got to be, got to have the right people around you. You got to have you got to have a constantly evolving strategy depending on, on the scenarios that they get thrown in your way. The, the ironic thing, and if you've heard enough of these cases, SK, you, you'll understand the term uh, parental abduction playbook. You'll hear that quite a bit because uh, all, the, all the child abductors that are doing this to their kids, they all seem to follow the same playbook. And it's pretty crazy. It doesn't matter if you're dealing with uh, an abductor in Japan, an abductor in Mexico, Brazil, you know, wherever you are, they all seem to follow the same playbook. It's pretty, pretty crazy when you, when you look at it from the big picture. You said that Mexico as a country do not have a good relationship with the Hague Convention. For those who are listening that have no clue about what is this Hague Convention is all about, it is practically a treaty between countries to provide a faster method to return a child who got kidnapped by a parent to another country. So Brian, can you explain a bit about what Mexico and their relationship with the convention, and how do you perceive it, or how do you understand it? Uh, it's so their their stance. So Mexico's reputation with the Hague is not very good. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, one is government in general, even the United States government. It's hard to who's if you have all these cases, how much manpower can be dedicated to resolving these cases as law enforcement versus some of the other things that are going on in the world, right? You're going to need like a million more uh, law enforcement agents uh, just, to, just to handle the, the workload. Uh, from a law standpoint, I think the laws are a good, it's a good way to show that they're, they're taking the, the issue of parental abduction and international parental abduction seriously. Uh, their heart's in the right place. Uh, execution we can we could debate execution on these laws till the cows come home, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I, I, the Hague is 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 a piece of paper and really nothing more. It's it's kind of a set of guidelines, and you know it looks good politically if if you sign the paper, right? Well, Japan never signed it. Japan never will sign it. They don't even they don't care uh, the, the least about the Hague. So one of the things that the State Department told me now, if if you're 
uh, if you're the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, you know, they're all buying, they're all drinking the, uh, the Hague Convention Kool-Aid. Uh, so the first thing they're going to tell you is absolutely file a Hague case. Uh, the, that's the worst advice you could give a parent coming out of the gates like this because you just don't know what you're dealing with. Um, the best advice would be there, inside the State Department, there's a division called the Office of Children's Services. And inside of that office, there is a li- group of people there, a liaison between us in pretty much any country that we have an embassy in. Obviously, Japan, Mexico, Brazil, you know, you name it. Uh, they have they can best tell you how the best course of action in each one of those countries. And I made really good inroads with a few people over there. And the first thing they told me was, I know the, the National Center wants you to file a Hague case. I'm telling you now, you do that, chances you seeing your daughter are going to be almost next to zero. Uh, you got to go another route because they just, they signed it, but they don't have the resources to enforce it. Even if they did, they wouldn't. It's just not, doesn't jive with the, their legal system. So in Mexico, unlike the United States, you're proven guilty. You're in it. You're guilty until proven innocent, which is completely different mindset as what we have here. When you get your head wrapped around that, you can almost understand from from a, a high level why a Hague case wouldn't necessarily work there. Uh, legal cases, even of the simple kind in Mexico, can take two years to resolve. Uh, you know, complex criminal case or hate case, those that it could that can get jammed up in courts for a decade or more. It just uh, so that's those are the big reasons why a Hague in Mexico just does not work. They would really like you to work with their system. Um, if you have to use their criminal system, then you're more than welcome to. Uh, you know, civil would be a good way to go. That's the way to start, and that's what we did. And so the National Center. I actually closed my file uh, and closed my case. Um, but the State Department has been goal. Uh, so one of the things they said was, uh, it's going to take a little bit of time. Once the, you establish that you're responsible and you're, you're a good father, you're good this and that, you being an American doesn't, they don't care about that, right? Because having good examples of fathers down there, um, they don't happen very often. And so they, they will bend over backwards if, if you can uh, consistently show that, you know, things are on the up and up. Single parent, kids living in single parent families in Mexico is approaching 40%. So they, they've seen, the, you know, they, they see a lot of the ugly in terms of uh, families not being a cohesive unit. So once you do that, uh, they will be on your side. They, you will win court cases there. Uh, the, the problem with that is, enforcement of those court cases. The, the, other, the other thing you have to worry about in Mexico is their uh, appeal process. Uh, they call it the Amparo process. And, and, and everyone has a right to uh, Amparo anything for any reason, no matter how stupid or ridiculous it might seem. And I've had that happen too. Samantha's mother used the Amparo process a few times just for any, no other reason than to throw a monkey wrench into things and buy her six months more uh, of, of time. She's done that several times. So one point, we, uh, we, we actually had her cornered. Uh, we got her boxed in in, in Tijuana, uh, had her served, did the whole DNA thing with the courts, you know, prove I'm, I'm the real dad and all this other stuff. Mexico considered her to be a flight risk. So she had restrictions. She wasn't allowed to leave the city limits until this was resolved, the whole nine yards. 
when she realized the gravity of the situation. I mean, the first thing out of her mouth was, how did you find me? <laughs> right? She was stunned that I made the effort to go after her. And uh, which kind of speaks volumes for, the, for how she felt about her uh, efforts of doing this in the first place. So finally, we broke through the system. The system says, well, while we resolve this, we're going to give him visitation to see his daughter. Um, you know, it's like six hours every Saturday, it's, you know, every other Saturday or whatnot. So she went and appealed it. She appealed it. It was a, she did the Amparo. Uh, she lost the Amparo. She escalated it with another Amparo. And then it ends up in the, the Supreme Court of Baja, California. And uh, the, Baja, the, the Supreme Court in Baja basically said, give this guy his daughter back. They didn't understand the problem. And what, why was it even in our, why was this even in our court to begin with? And that's when the State Department said, um, she's not going to take this decision lightly. You got to watch your head down in Mexico. Because uh, they had her labeled as just with all this stuff, all the evidence they collected at the house, all the things that they learned about her during the, you know, the, the investigations and stuff. They said she is, she has hostile and violent tendencies and she's, uh, without a medical diagnosis, but she's exhibiting bipolar traits as well. And uh, so she's like, she's going she's gonna to lash out at you. Uh, it's only, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So you got you to uh, watch your back. What's fascinating about that is it would be another four years. So this is, we're now looking at April, May, 2010. It wouldn't be until July, June, July, 2014. She tried to do the same thing to me, and she wanted me to have uh, a, you know, some sort of evaluation, psychological evaluation. It was just another stall tactic, really, is what it was. Um, and the judge asked me if I had a problem, and I said no. I said, but only under one condition. And I said, you know, she does another one, and then we have Sam do it too. And, and so she hesitated, she balked, and then she said, okay, I'll do it, but you're, you're going to go first. And so we did some legal maneuvering and we actually made up a story that we would, do, we, we would do it first, but we knew if I did it first, she wasn't going to do it. This was uh, one of those things, she will telegraph what she's going to do without coming right out and telling you what she's going to do. And this was one of those moments, it's like, she's never going to do this. We need to figure out how to make her believe that I took the thing first. So she takes it and, and does the, her thing, right? So the judge said he was going to withhold. He was going to withhold judgment, and there were other concessions she wanted that we were okay with. It, and but she had to take the test, and she did. She she finally uh, we did some legal maneuvering when she took the test. There are professionals in Mexico recognized Sam's uh, the alienation part. They they had some very strong opinions about uh, you know her mother uh, on those lines that she clearly is affected by what's going on with her. Um, and they also came out and said this almost verbatim, the same thing that the state department had noticed, uh, except they came out and said, uh, yeah, she's absolutely bipolar. You know, she, she is hostile. She, she can be violent, uh, you know, without proper help or medication, there's no way to really treat that. And so, and that was big, bold, all capital letters. You know, I mean, I, I was like, holy cow. Right, so this is four years after effect. So, yeah. So the 
the State Department findings, you know, they said, hey, yeah, watch your back. You know, three months later, that ambush came and it came heavy. Uh, it was Adriana, it was a friend of hers. It was her mother had bribed a bunch of uh, police officers to ambush me while I was down there with my daughter. I got one of those visits that the judge allowed me to have. And on a street corner down there, these cops came out of nowhere. I'm holding Samantha's hand. You know, she's like, what in the world? There's these guys with guns, you know? Uh, and this was towards the end of my visit, right? So this was one of these things where I was, you know, we were, we were about to say goodbye and I was going to head back home. Yeah, the cops had me at gunplay. There were four cars, I got to assume. Uh, I saw, I remember at least several cops. I don't remember exactly how many uh, were there, but I remember several of them. And, uh, you know, didn't tell me what was going on. All of a sudden, I turn around and I see Adriana, her mother and her friend, running down the street, punching themselves in the arm, scratching themselves with rocks. The friend was scratching her face to make it look like I, I had the hell out of them. And that was their story. Yeah, that was their story. Uh, I'm like, oh, shit. This isn't good. I was able to kiss Sam by and I let her. Uh, one of the other, one of the officers was female. And she took Sam and, you know, gave her a big hug. She's crying. She's like, what are you doing to my dad? You know, I, what's going on? This and that. So they take me away. And I honestly, for the next several hours, uh, I'm riding around in the back of a, a Mexican local police truck. You know, and it's not uncommon down in Mexico for them to use trucks because they, you know, if they're on patrol or whatnot, they can round up a bunch of people at one time. So what, I'm handcuffed to the back of this truck and I'm being bounced around. I'm going through some areas of town that just, uh, they look like they got bombed or something. It was, I, I fully expected either the cop to pull over and shoot me in the head or I expected someone in one of those, uh, in one of those, you know, shanties to do it. You know, I, I mean, I didn't think I was coming home unless I was in a body bag. That's how dire that situation was. Along the way, I felt better when they started picking up other people. So I realized, okay, this is, this is part of their job. This is their routine. There's nothing routine about them ambushing me, that's for sure. And driving behind us is Adriana and her friend. They're driving behind the police truck, following me around town, and they're filming the whole thing. They're flipping me off. You know, they're giving me the bird and all that's the middle finger and all that stuff. We're driving along the border, and I realized the cops never searched me. I got my cell phone in my back pocket. So the guy next to me, I asked him, can you reach in there and grab the phone? If you do that, if you need to make a phone call, I'll go ahead and use it when I'm done. That phone call probably saved my life. I knew I had a finite amount of time because uh, that part of the, the border uh, roaming is a little bit of an issue. And so I knew I had maybe two minutes to get this phone call off and I got it off. Listen to me carefully. I'm in a little bit of trouble. I don't know what's going on. I got arrested in Mexico. Actually, you know, I'm like, I got ambushed in Mexico. I need you to call my attorneys. I know their number by heart. You know, it's like their, their phone number was my middle name after a while. So I know I just say call. I say call. Here's her cell phone. Call the cell phone, and then follow that up with a text message and hit nine one one after. That's our code. That that the shit's hitting fan. I was in the drunk tank for a few hours. You know, saw some pretty interesting things there. Uh, one of the police officers told me that uh, you know all Adriana, all she wants is five hundred dollars to make this go away. I'm like fucking done. We're good. <laughs> Let's do this. 
<laughs> and then the, the story kept changing. And I, and I didn't doubt that for a second because that's how things are done there. The one thing that, especially corrupt cops, the one thing they don't want to do when they know they've illegally picked up a, a, someone from another country, they don't want paperwork. Um, so they, they, want, they all had their hand out wanting, wanting to get paid and then you know, be done with me, which was fine with me. So as, as I kept agreeing, the demands kept getting bigger. I, you know, finally, she, she decided to go ahead and file a fake criminal case. Typically, when you're in the drunk tank, you're there, it, it, you're there for 48 hours. So this is the whole, uh, and that's basically their version of a misdemeanor, right? So if they pick you up on something minor, they put you in the tank for two days, 48 hours, or whatever, and then they let you go. That's it. There's no paperwork. There's no nothing. It's kind of like an adult timeout. That's the way these people look at it. You see a lot of interesting things go there. Now, for a situation like this, this is a lot more serious because I basically was yanked off the street by, by a group of cops. And these two, uh, you know, Adrian, her friend, and her mom are, are faking injuries by punching themselves in the face, uh, trying to make it look like it was me. That was a little more serious. And so it took, took three days for my attorneys to find me. They knew exactly what was going on. And they, and they told my friends, the one place you absolutely do not want him going is La Mesa prison because that's where he's headed if she files charges. Uh, we need to do, we need to get ahead of this. We need to figure out what's going on. We need to find him. We don't even know where he is yet, but they had an idea. They did eventually find me. Basically, you know, I'm coming up on the end of these 48 hours. So I'm down to like uh, two and a half, three hours. And my attorney said, she may not, she may, we haven't seen her. Nobody's seen her. They got people camped out at the, the criminal court building looking for her, you know, to see if she's going to, file a, uh, a case against you for whatever. So I, I'm encouraged. I'm like, okay, well, maybe she realized this is kind of a bad idea. Maybe she will. She's just doing this to punish me because she knows she can't. But that's not what happened. So like an hour later, yeah, they did take me. Uh, went on to a drive to uh, La Mesa prison. As we're driving uh, to the gates, you know, they, they drive you in the, in the prison itself. You don't walk it. We drive by, and who do we see? We see Adriana and her friend walking out of the, the little criminal court building. They had just, whatever bullshit story they were coming up with, they had just got done trying to tell it. And the cop just, I, I, know, I know enough Spanish to know what curse words are in Spanish. <laughs> and he, he went off. He was so angry uh, at Adriana. And he goes, everybody, everybody in that police station knows she's full of shit. That's what he told me. And there she is. And there was nothing they could do about it. So that he was, he was angry for me, you know, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, and he apologized. He said, I, I don't want to do this because we know she's lying. And, uh, you know, but this, is, this, this is the job. And this is the system. And you know, just hang in there, man. You know, you'll be fine. And uh, State Department came, check on me. Uh, they were there every day. Uh, I was in that prison for a week. And uh, put it mildly, I could still to this day, I can still smell that place. You know, it's been, uh, uh, it's been 10 and a half years. I could see the faces of all the guys I was in that jail with. Um, and all of them couldn't have been cooler, right? You know, one guy was, was, was in there for five years because he couldn't pay a $200 fine after he got arrested for breaking into his own car because he locked his keys in his car. No, I'm dead serious. This guy was in that prison for five years because he couldn't come up with $200, get himself out of jail, 
because uh, he broke into his own car because he locked his keys in it and he was trying to get to work. So, yeah, um, there were a lot of stories like that. All right, that's a horrible situation to be in. How did you end up getting out of the prison at the end? The State Department came to visit me the first time just to do a welfare check once they realized what happened. And I'm like, well, you guys weren't kidding, man. You told me this was going to happen. Here it is. And so they told me what she was doing. She basically, the story was, uh, I, I beat the crap out of Adriana. I beat the crap out of her mom. I beat the crap out of her friend. I beat the crap out of her son. And I beat the crap out of 12 police officers. <laughs> I'm going, man, I, you know, I wish I had those kind of skills, right? All of a sudden, I turn into Jason Bourne or something, you know, I'm able to go on like this rampage. But uh, the cop thing was interesting because I saw what happens to guys in jail if you even mouth off to these guys. And that's not pretty. Uh, you best just be respectful and, you know, they'll, they'll return the favor. Uh, they're not assholes. They just, uh, you know, I, I can't even imagine what being a cop is like in that town. But yeah, eventually, I, I, it cost me... Uh, pretty good sum of money to get out of that place, which I was happy to deal with. Um, but that was just one of the examples. Other examples were, uh, you know, she's here. And after that, I heard they, they were telling me that she's, uh, they warned me that she was going to use domestic violence as an excuse because they all do it. She's like, every single case that we see that's involved with a female abductor uh, all ends up in some sort of domestic violence uh, accusation, whether it's as serious as what she's trying to claim with you or something simple as, uh, they've seen something simple as, oh, uh, I think he poisoned my food kind of thing or whatever, you know, give me examples. And so that, that was definitely going on. And then I learned more about the Amparo process and how all that works. And it gave me uh, some advice on, on how to, probably had an Amparo off, which my attorneys were obviously really good at doing. So, you know, it was things like that. Um, and they just said, this is going to be a grind. I understand that you were in prison for a week plus and you got out of there. Thank God for that. But the real fight here is to gain custody of your child. And that was still ongoing. Were you able to gain back custody after all that? The funny part about all this SK is that uh, when you tell the truth about stuff, you don't have to remember what you said to anybody. So her story changed every time she opened up her mouth. Mine hasn't changed once. All these years later, but not one word of, of what I'm telling you has changed in the 12 and a half years that this has been going on. So, And they picked up on that. The judges picked up on that. And they wanted to see that dynamic work in their courtroom face-to-face. -face. And um, you know, the, there was a flip side to honesty. Because if you're dealing with someone who's hell-bent on uh, destroying their own life and hell-bent on lying, trying to cover up a lie by lying some more, um, eventually they're going to get worn out. And then the you know, State Department said when the going gets too tough for her, when she's finally cornered in into a space she can't lie her way out of, she's going to go on the run again. And she did. She did. She went on the run 13 other times because of the same exact scenario. You know, there is a pattern. You file a court case, you go to court. We win the judgment, she appeals, we win that, it goes to the Supreme Court, we win that. Now that's already two years, right? So to her, we win the case, but who cares? This is two years that we're dragging this thing out. Guess what? 
Now you won the Supreme Court case. Oh, okay, I'm going to ambush you and have you thrown into prison for something that never happened. Uh, that's going to be an 18-month grind, right? And all the while, now the family court stuff got stalled 18 months because they want to see how the criminal courts are going to play this. You know what I mean? So now you're dealing with that. Now you win that because finally the case gets dropped. But now you got to go back and, and do with the family stuff all over again. Except now you got to you got to find Adriana and you got to find Samantha because they just took off. They were they flew the coop. So now you got to find them. However long that most most times we did it in under three or four months. Now you got to reintroduce this thing to the court system again, which is going to take another six months to a year to a year and a half. And it was a rinse and repeat scenario. She did this for she moved yeah thirteen times in eight years. So long story short, you keep winning the court cases and still after all that, you haven't got any applicable end to this. Am I right? Well, yes, we are still trying to sit. This situation has not been fully resolved. Um, in 2014, at the time I was telling you, she wanted us to do the psych evaluation thing, which was fine. She was in the, a different family court in Tijuana basically filing a case against me saying, uh, I'm a deadbeat dad. She doesn't know where I am. I am not responsible for my kid. Uh, and literally, this court is literally next door to the one that we've been doing battle in for, for the previous six years. Literally five feet away. And so she's in that next room. And if it wasn't for a uh, uh, an ally uh, in the court that... Our, one of our attorneys has, we probably never would have found out. And in fact, her attorney's exact words were nobody can find out we're doing this. Because basically they were going to try and say, uh, we don't know where he is. Uh, my client should have full rights, <clears throat> full custody of, of her daughter. Uh, when I've been paying into the system, they know who I am in the other courtroom. They made no mention of it. They made no mention of the criminal case that they, we, they just lost. They never made mention of anything uh, about me other than the fact that uh, they're making false, another set of false accusations against me. We found that out. And this was sort of the beginning of the end because here, so Mexico recognizes alienation and they recognize parental abduction. They go about it a little bit different. So this is over these years, we're building, uh, you know, we're building this thing brick by brick. It's slowly coming to a crescendo. And uh, so we, you know, once they had published, because if, if you say you don't know where somebody is and you're trying to file a case against them, they have to put it out there in the public. So with the, the public, they find it like the, the smallest, rinkiest, it could be, you know, the, the free grocery store flyer for, you know, and they'll put a thing in there looking for me and you have a court date here and you got to do all that. That's somehow legal. <laughs> and because we knew it, you know, we knew that what would, in my attorneys were spot on. They're like, well, they're not going to put this in the main newspaper. They're going to go find some local paper that nobody's probably heard of, and it's completely legal. And so that's what they did. And they ended up finding it. So now they're locked into their lies. Uh, now they're officially locked in. Unfortunately, perjury is not a big deal. But this, there was a, a little bit of a paradigm shift in this case because she got her boyfriend involved. And he's part of this whole charade. We eventually blew the case up. The judge that heard the case was very angry 
at Adriana. And so he didn't, he didn't take kindly to the, to the level of BS that he was reading about in these court filings. Because now this guy has to go through all the other court cases at the time that he's got to deal with. And that's the last thing he wanted to do. So he tried to get Adriana to drop the case. She wouldn't drop the case. You know, and, I, and, I, and, he asked me, and he asked me point blank, what do you want all this? And I told him, this is heading down a path I don't want to go down. I don't want to see her in jail. I've already been in your jails here. Uh, I lasted a week there, but that's not the goal. The goal's not, the goal was never to have her incarcerated. We got to come to a compromise that makes everybody happy. She's got a boyfriend for crying out loud. What does she care? Well, I, you know, what does a guy like that want with somebody who's willing to drag people through the mud like this? And, and I said, that's it. If we can find a compromise right now, let's do it. She had no interest in a compromise. And the judge asked her, she, well, how come you're, She's like, how come you don't want to, you know, how come you don't want to compromise? He seems pretty reasonable to me. And she turns around, and she says, you know, F him. And that was it. She goes, I'm not, I'm not compromising. She didn't want to compromise because she thought, and she she actually did say this on, on court record, and it is part of the, the, the court records. And I do believe there's there's some truth to this. Uh, she thinks that I'm gonna do to her what she has done to me. The judge told her straight up. He's like, if you keep doing what you're doing, you won't have to worry about him taking your kid away because you're going to be in jail. That's the path you're going down. Eventually, uh, the the Mexican court system is going to get tired of her. Never mind him. We're going to get tired of dealing with you because you haven't obeyed one court order yet. Then she chose to drag it out. She chose to continue the fight. and, And, you know, by law, she... She and the judge had a grant her request, so we had the we had the court hearing. The best thing and also the worst thing that happened was the cross examinations. You know, we were two steps ahead of them every time. And, and mind you, these hearings are going on in Baja, Mexico. Uh, downtown Tijuana is in a valley, and that valley gets hot in June and July. <laughs> that courtroom was like 100 plus degrees. And the best thing they could do was the ceiling fans just weren't enough, right? And uh, Adriana was on it. My attorneys had her on the stand for two days. And she looked like she wanted to vomit. You know, she, she, couldn't, she couldn't remember lies that she told. Uh, you know, we cross-examined her about a lot of stuff. And uh, she lied left and right. And, you know, the judge kept telling her, you know, we're going to file a criminal complaint. I'll do it myself. You can't stop telling the truth. Didn't matter, man. She, she was lying through the whole thing. Uh, her mother was on the stand for half a day, did the same thing. They couldn't even look at me in the eye. I'm standing, I'm sitting literally 10 feet away from them as they're doing this. They couldn't even look at me. Uh, that's how they knew they were in trouble. And then the boyfriend comes in, same thing. Uh, you know, uh, it got so ridiculous. So the, the case in this court, SK, went from, we don't know who we, where he is, he's a deadbeat, we haven't seen him in years, to I ran away from him because of domestic violence, this, that, and the other thing. So the boyfriend gets on. And you know, he's trying to paint this picture of, oh, I saw him abuse her. I saw him, you know, hit Adriana and this and that. And the attorney, my attorney was like, well, what, what did he do exactly? You know, I, it was so long ago, I don't remember. Well, did he punch her? Did he kick her? You know, did he run her over in, in his car? I mean, what did he do? So long ago. I mean, it happened so many times, I don't remember. What was he wearing? 
I, I don't know. I don't remember. It was so long ago. Well, what was she wearing? You know, same same answers over and over and over again. I had nothing to hide. So I'm, and he got so uncomfortable just with me being 10 feet in front of him. He tried to have his attorney block our view. And the judge told you know, so now he's trying to maneuver him to make his client more comfortable so he can lie better. The judge asked him what's wrong with his client. He says he doesn't like the way I was staring at him. And he goes, yeah, that's what he said. He goes, well, maybe if he concentrated on telling the truth, we wouldn't have a reason. To eat. That's what the judge told him. I mean, it's not, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out we won that case too. Like I said, that was the best thing that happened in this case and also the worst thing because the judge did take it upon himself to file criminal cases against the three of them. Amount of BS that was being shoveled in his courtroom. And one thing you definitely do not want to do in Mexico is embarrass an officer of the court under any circumstance. Because if you put egg on their face, they, they, they do not take that lightly. It was a skate. I mean, this is all part of court record. You can go on one of their legal portals and find all these documents, SK, it's all there. So yeah, he, he, did, he wrote the scathing rebuke to their claims during that judgment. And he also filed a criminal case against, against them for perjury, which we knew wasn't going to go anywhere. But now you have the precedence for the criminal courts to get involved because a judge took it upon themselves to do it itself. And they, they'll take a judge's word over a cop's word any day. And that was a huge moment in this case. When Adriana found that out, she took off again. And she went from Tijuana to Mexico City without telling anybody. The sad part about all this, Sam had never been to the same school twice in, in consecutive school years. Absolutely. People often forget about the third part of the equation when it comes to parental alienation and abduction. There's a child in between who's actually suffering with all these that are happening in between the parents. So what is currently happening with the situation? Yeah, so, well, yeah, I mean, so when the, the, the kitchen got hot and, and what does Adriana do? She packs up and she, uh, she fled. In fact, uh, between then and the, between that court date and the time she fled, she found time to get married. <laughs> Not to the boyfriend. There was another guy. and I, There was another guy in the picture. There was a revolving door uh, in that house. And she... If she played her cards right, SK, and this sounds, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic when I say this, but if she played her cards right, she had a hell of a hustle going on because she, I would, she knows I would have done anything to, to keep my daughter happy, right? Which means if she needed money, this, that, or the other. Then she had the boyfriend who couldn't spell the word no, let alone actually say it. Uh, so he was giving her, so what we found out during that court stuff where they all got charged with perjury, um, my attorney asked, you know, he went through, well, you know, Brian, Brian doesn't support Sam. And he's like, well, if he wasn't supporting Sam, who was? And he's like, I, I was. We we're like, holy crap. So, so what Adriana was doing, she was basically, she lied to the boyfriend saying, I'm not paying to help support Sam while all this is going on. He's fitting the bill, believing her story. Meanwhile, there's proof that I've been doing it all along because those are the things that, those are the questions that Adriana couldn't answer. And we're showing her copies of all the certified checks and they're coming in two week intervals. I mean, what else is that money being used for, right? And so, oh, that amount happens to be the amount that the judge said I had of A. Wow, what a coincidence. So that was going on. Then she's going back to the boyfriend, you know, hit him up for money. 
And then she had a third guy on the side who is a Scottish native. And he would come into town you know, every three months. And I'm sure if she's hitting the boyfriend up for money, when this guy gets to town, you know, she's got to be hitting him up for money too, right? It's quite the little scam. Uh, and what we noticed in the house uh, when we would go see Sam, pictures in the house would change. So now you had her and the boyfriend. And then when the other boyfriend was in town, those pictures changed. SK, the kicker is the first boyfriend, the guy who perjured himself in court, his name was on all the leases. Every time they ran, every time we, it's the one thing about Mexico, uh, people who own property in Mexico don't necessarily like to rent to other Mexican nationals by themselves because they, they want somebody from the United States to sign those, co-sign those leases. And this guy co-signed every single one of them. So now she's running this scam where he's, he thinks I'm not paying, uh, I'm not being responsible. So he's fitting the bill for it. And they're all living in a house that he rented for them. Meanwhile, she's got a guy in the back coming in the back door every three months, probably hitting him up for cash. It was an absolute train wreck. Um, and, and, and Sam, Samantha was like, yeah, this is, you know, she's like, this is, this is nuts. Cause you know, she's talking about, oh, I did, you know, I went out golfing or I, I did this and I did that. I go, oh, she do that with the, with so-and-so, the boyfriend. She's like, no, I did it with this other guy. <laughs> oh my God. And somehow I only get, I got six hours every two weeks, which kind of, kind of crazy. Uh, but yeah, she fled. She fled when that when that when the heat got too hot again. And you're asking, you know, how did this conclude? Well, the the same court deal that I just explained to you uh, with uh, that she got charged perjury with. She did it again. Uh, that same exact thing again it, uh, outside of Mexico City. She did the same exact thing there. And she, we had a feeling, and, and like I said, we knew we know her so well. She will tell you what she's going to do without fully telling you. And so we knew. I said, "Well, when we find her, the first thing we have to do is check to see if she didn't pull the stunt again." Because I'm pretty damn sure she did. And everybody else was in agreement. And that's how we found her. Just we we put the tracers out. Not only did we put the tracers out, we had an Amber Alert, uh, and then the Mexican media got wind of the story. So now we have the national news trying to get airtime and FaceTime with us so they can, they can tell our story. And they both did. Telvisa and Azteca uh, both you know, ran our story in Mexico. So we got some incredible coverage. But it was the, the best thing that happened to us was that case. But the worst thing was now we have to go find them again. Um, and that Amber Alert uh, was absolutely incredible because within literally 30 seconds of that Amber Alert going out, uh, we got a hit. Two weeks later, we found out that we did track down Adriana, did actually file another false case against me in that city. Uh, not only did she file that case against me in civil court, she went after me again in criminal court. We needed to know what we were dealing with first. So they went down there and the judge in this case was just like, you got to be kidding me. You know, we told the judge, went through this with her a, a year ago in, in Tijuana. And he's like, and, and as they're talking, all their assistants back in, the, in their law office were, were sending her this, all 40,000 plus certified copies of the entire case. Uh, and they arrived in like six different boxes. 
So she's like, well, they have a new, they have a court date coming up in October. You know, uh, I'll read through all the files. We got to keep it quiet. Um, cause if they get a hint that you're coming, they can pull their petition. Um, and, and then once they once this hearing, the hearing on October was basically to present their case and make it an official case. So it's just procedural, uh, an aspect to them. She's like, I absolutely want you guys to come, you know, you, you come, we start the hearing and then you can blow this whole thing up yourself if you want. That would be the, that the judge told us that'd be the, how she would do it. And so now we had a month to figure out what the criminal case was. Um, you know, and we got, we got, we got copies of the, 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 the uh, civil court stuff that she, um, that she filed against me. So we had investigators looking into the information that we got from that. Uh, you know, and then, you know, it was basically go time. Right. So we found out everything on that, uh, everything that Adriana had filed in Mexico city was absolutely false. She did not give a proper uh, address. She, uh, it was more of the same. Brian's a deadbeat. Brian doesn't, we haven't seen him in years. Uh, same thing she did in Tijuana, but now she's using false addresses because the address, uh, when, when the investigators went to uh, investigate it, it was basically an empty field. There was nothing on it, you know? So um, it, that was a lie. So, you know, and that, that, that tells you right there that this, this obviously was done with very bad intentions and you couple that with a, with a criminal case that she filed uh, you know, we knew that had to be bad too. So we eventually, uh, we tracked her down. We, we went to, the, we found the school. Uh, you know, they told us some interesting things uh, about Sam's behavior at school. Nothing, nothing egregious, just signs of that she's struggling because she came from another school. Um, she looked worn out is basically what it came down to. She, they said, Samantha looks tired. Uh, she's doing very well in some some parts of her curriculum and not in others. And I already knew that her strengths and weaknesses, so I already uh, knew. I, I rattled off the classes. I knew she was probably doing really well in it. And they're like, you really do know your daughter. So I said, well, I'd like to get to know her better. But this is a start, right? And so they gave us, uh, they showed, they couldn't give us the file to keep, but they allowed us to take pictures of it. Uh, it was the registration file to register in the school. And so, uh, and there's, and, and Adriana's uh, penmanship is absolutely impeccable. So I knew who, I knew it was her. Uh, she, basically they're a bunch of Q&A, you know, and then they put down emergency contact kind of information, that kind of stuff. But on the, uh, on the back of the thing, on the, they were like the, you know, you know how you fill out a form and you can, you got the uh, additional comment section. You can write whatever you want. They had one of those. And on the, on the form itself, it said, under no circumstance uh, are you to share any information about Samantha with her father should he find us. This is, those were her exact words. Um, and so they asked her about it at the school. And uh, Adriana said, you know, he's abusive. We haven't seen him in years. Um, this and that and the other, but he's very good at what he does. 
and he and there's a good chance he could find us. And they did, the principal of the school said that that conversation was uh, very creepy on a lot of levels. Um, and she's like, hindsight, you know, having now that she's sitting across the table from us in her office, she's like, I wish we would have pressed the issue more to find out what this is all about. Um, and, and it all kind of made sense to them now, right? Because they had the full picture. You know, Sam's tired for obvious reasons. And, uh, you know, uh, why, why, why are you worried about a guy you say you haven't seen in years? Why are you worried about tracking him down down here, right? Uh, so all those things that they did actually were wondering about, they never followed through on it. And she said, honestly, even if we found out the truth, I'm not sure there would have been anything we could do. What, what could we have done? And we were cool with it. We're like, well, no, it's not, it wasn't a scenario where uh, that's not something you come to work as a principal of a school and you go, oh, I hope I don't run into this. Um, it, you know what I mean? So we, they, were, they were so um, humble about it. It actually brought the principal to tears. But when she thought about what was happening to one of her students because of something her mother was doing, that's what she, she's like, I got three daughters of my own. I, I couldn't imagine this scenario for any of my kids. And, and she says, we'll do everything we can to keep her comfortable here. Um, we won't let anybody know you're here. We won't tell her that you were here. And we're like, please don't. <laughs> you can't, can't afford that. You know, investigators in Tijuana definitely uh, got together with the, the uh, you know, legal, legal eagles down in, in that part of Mexico City. Uh, they knew her profile, psych profile. They knew she had hostile and violent tendencies and they wanted to A, mitigate uh, any, any, anything to the public, right? They didn't want to put the public at risk. But obviously, their goal was to make sure Sam didn't get hurt either. So um, they sat on the house for a while and they, they basically knew all her ins and outs. Um, uh, she was very comfortable uh, thinking and possibly knowing that I, she finally won. You know, she finally got over on us. When little did she know, you know, the exact opposite was happening. And on May or March uh, 2nd, uh, 2016, uh, they, they ran a sting operation and they apprehended her. And I was there to see it. Now, in between all that, as you can imagine, we're, we're in constant communication with, with the investigators and local police. And all of us were... Uh, in stunned silence that it, it took eight years to get to that point. Um, and until she was on that airplane, nobody was resting easy. In the meantime, we still had to figure out what was going on with this criminal case. And um, when we pitched that reward, her husband was still in the UK at the time. Um, he was in Aberdeen, Scotland. And our investigators that were handling the UK side of things are, uh, were in London. And uh, the reward hotline, this guy called the reward hotline a dozen times. Uh, and he hung up every time except the last one. And he, he's like, uh, and, he, and you know, they were pretty matter of fact with him. He's like, uh, and he doesn't know, he doesn't know that his wife just got arrested, right? or is about to get arrested. This is just before that. So he's calling the guys, trying to plead his case. Well, you know, he, he came up here 
he came up here with friends and they, he was chasing us around with guns. And he's like, when, when, when did he do that? And he's, he's, so now we got him on tape kind of laying out this case that me and some friends went to, to Scotland to chase him down. We all had guns and this and that. And he's, he's like, uh, yeah, F that guy. <laughs> That's basically what he said. And so the investigator was like, okay, so what are you calling me for? I mean, this is a reward hotline. I don't, I don't want to hear your sob story. And uh, he's like, I'm just telling you, he's not a good dude. He's not a good dude. He's, he's here trying to hurt, hurt me. He's, hurt, he's trying to hurt his daughter. He's, hurting, he's just not a good dude. And uh, he's like, you got information for us or not? If you got information that checks out, you're X amount of money richer. If you're not, then just you know, don't bother. Because we don't believe your story. And I was that we didn't. He hung up the phone, didn't hear her again. And then I, I tell you that story because we we go to the criminal, we find out that where the criminal case is being heard, and we got to sit down with that judge because uh, you know there the, there were whispers about that case being tainted. You know the the judge in the civil court down there who we sat down with uh, and told us what was going on down there. She had words with this judge and told her what was going on. And this, this judge was absolutely livid. Uh, and she said that uh, you guys need to sit down and read what they're accusing me of doing. And, I know I, and now we already know. And I go, I don't know, Your Honor. I, I, I have a feeling it might be... Uh, me and some friends coming down and chasing people with guns, something like that. She says, "How did you know?" <laughs> and I said, "We just he the, the husband just told our investigators. Uh, we told him about the reward. We told him about all this stuff. Um, we told him all these things, and uh, it's the same exact story, same exact story, and uh, they could not believe it." And so basically, yeah, she's like, take this. Here's the, uh, here's the, uh, here's the thing. We can't let you walk because it's still an active case. But, um, you know, do what you can. Take pictures with your phone. Do whatever you got to do. Uh, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll bury this thing until we can officially, you know, uh, drop it kind of a thing. And so, yeah, basically the story was uh, me and some gun-toting friends went down to central Mexico, found their house, which doesn't exist because it's, it's in an open field, kicked down a gate, threatened to kill everybody in the house. And, uh, but if they're in the civil court trying to say they haven't seen me in years, right? I'm a deadbeat. I don't this, that, and the other, right? But some other tone. The criminal court, this other story. The reason why this is significant is that they have very strict gun laws in Mexico. Um, you you get caught in the commission of a crime, or, or the reason why this judge was so mad was because if you're even accused of a crime involving a gun, uh, that's serious stuff, right? Um, and because of the way their system is set up, guilty until proven innocent, uh, you you get arrested, you're in jail until the case gets resolved. And those cases could take two, three, four, five years, right? And so in a case like this, this is the reason why the judge is so pissed 
uh, Adriana's legal team down there did try to ambush us in the, in the civil court, not just ambush me, but ambush our whole team. Um, they had guys with guns masquerading as security guards. Uh, and after one of the court cases, um, you know, they whisked everybody out of the courtroom uh, with these guns. And, you know, Sam's like, why is my dad here? You know, what is he doing here? I thought, you know, thought nobody could see him and all this other stuff. And I say, you know, she's being whisked away with guys with guns. It's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, so we had that going on. And then they had the police surround the court building uh, trying to arrest me. And they uh, we really had to do some, some, you know, Argo. If you ever saw the movie Argo, we had to do some Argo type stuff just to get out of that building and get out of that town. And once we were outside the city limits, uh, we were safe. I mean, it was pretty hairy for a while. The, the crazy part about all this SK, in the, in the court systems down there, uh, everything is recorded. Every hearing uh, is visually and auto, uh, audio recorded. So we have DVDs. Uh, they send you the stuff when the court cases are done. And so you don't see the behind-the-scenes stuff I'm telling you, but you do hear, you do see us in the, like when there's a court hearing they have where you don't see anybody. You see Adriana's representation and nobody else. And then the next time we, we came in and we blew it up. Uh, now, these, you could see the demeanor in that group of people change. It was like night and day. Because now we're there, we know what's going on. And uh, we're gonna we're gonna deal, yeah. So they had the they had the police surround the building. We had kind of argo our way out of that, and uh, yeah, it was crazy. Um, so as all this is going on, I you know, I, I they were very very. They had Samantha really really well guarded, and had a guy try to accost me in the jail, not the jail, the court, and uh, you know, I told him that ain't happening, son. This is my kid. You know, you're not going to keep me from her. That's, and he backed off. I mean, dude was like half my size. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked out very well for him. Um, yeah. And Sam, you know, Sam, Sam at first was angry, confused. She hadn't seen me in, in a few years. And so she's trying to figure, actually, it was like two and a half years at that point. And uh, she's trying to figure out, you know, why I'm there. She kept asking that question. Why is dad here? Why is dad? And they didn't have any answers for him. They tried to take her into another room to keep her away from the, from the situation. Um, at one point, the judge is like, I want to talk to Sam. I want to find out what she thinks about all this. And so what the judge did was they had Samantha in the judge's chambers. And again, all oh, this is on, it's been recorded. Uh, it's audio and visual. I'm going to share it. I'm putting it up on the website soon enough. Um, Basically, she took off the judge robe, you know, to kind of make it still a little less uh, intimidating for Samantha. Uh, and they had uh, child, child services professionals in there, the psychology people, uh, you know, doctors. So they, they're all medical, whatever the, the, their qualifications were, were, were top-notch, is, is, uh, from what I understand. And they were, they were really nice. And so they were all in the room, and there was a non-threading environment. You know, they, they brought some games in, so Sam could occupy her time for a few minutes. And uh, so we're sitting in the courtroom. We can hear 
and see what's being said. Um, you know, and, and she talks about, she's, she's like, do you understand why you're here? She's like, no, I don't understand why I'm here. And so she tells him, as you can tell someone her age at that time, and she says, that's why your dad's here. And she's like, good. You know, she's like, do you miss your dad? She's like, yes. And she's like, and she said, uh, yes, but I, I also don't like what my mom's doing. And, and then that caught the judge off guard. Like, okay, we're talking about your dad. Now you brought your mom into it. Why? So she's like, well, what did your mom do? She goes, she keeps taking me away from it. And, you know, every year I go to a different school. Every year I got to learn new friends. Every year I got to move. But why, do you, why are you doing all of that? Because my mom's trying to hide from my dad. Those are exact words. And then she tried to dial it back. She says, well, what about, what about, what about your mom's husband? And, and she doesn't even, she calls him by his first name. And uh, she, yeah, he's nice to me, but he's not around much. She, you know, works on boats or whatever. Uh, but yeah, he's nice to me when he's home. And then, uh, you know, is it the same thing as being with your dad? He's, she's like, no, it's not the same. And then she asked the judge, when can I get out of here? I don't want to live here anymore. And then uh, she asked her why. She says, well, I want to be close to my dad, and I know my dad loves the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's what she said. And so uh, they, that hearing went on for maybe an hour. And the interesting part was looking at the body language of Adriana's legal team. Now, mind you, the entire time this is going on, SK, Adriana was never there. She had, uh, presumably, we, we think she was in the UK with her husband at the time. Uh, yeah, because she, had, she gave her attorney's power of attorney to represent her um, while this was going on. So the case blows up, uh, you know, and they tried all their legal tricks to try and stall all this stuff. And the judge is like, you brought this BS case to me. Uh, we're going, here's how this is. Yeah, she's like, you knew, you knew this was all a lie. And now I'm telling you how this is going to go. And she laid out the ground rules for the case. Um, we're going to give, and she's like, when we, when we adjourn for the day, uh, we're going to get Brian and Samantha together. I'll give you guys 10 minutes unabated in one of these side rooms. Uh, just to, you know, because she knows you're here, obviously. And, and so that, that's the important part. Then she laid out the ground rules for the rest of the, the hearing and, and, and had, because uh, they wanted, to, they wanted a, a three-month delay so they could go through the entire case files and all this other crap. And the judge said, you already know what's in those boxes. You already know what's, what's in those, what's in there. I'm not giving you any time. If you want to read it, feel free to read them here, right, right now, or, you know, there's a hotel across the street. You can stay there and read it, but you're not going to do it on my time. Yeah, that's, but she was tough. She was, you know, she was tough. And then, uh, you know, they, they went through, I didn't have to even uh, testify or anything. I mean, it was that dominant of a, we laid out the case so well that, you know, they were trying to, they caught us in a sidebar and they said, well, um, can we find it? Can we negotiate? Can we find a compromise here? I go, if you can convince Adriana what that actually word, that whatever that word means, uh, then obviously yes. And they're like, okay. And they're like, well, where is she? She's not, she, this, you're, she's the reason we're all here. 
uh, where is she? She says, well, she's not here. So she, I want to sit across from her at a table to get this coffee. We're not going to do this. We're not doing this over our phone. I want to see her. I want to see her. I want her to look me in the eye. And, and you know, with all, of all the bullshit that she's had to put all of us through, uh, she owes me at least that. He says, I'll see what I can do. We already knew she wasn't there. So, yeah, I mean, that was that. And so then, you know, I didn't get the 10 minutes with Sam because that's those were the security guards with the guns. They whisked her out. And I, we had to fight off uh, an ambush. And, and so you have all these judges in Tijuana that set the stage for Adriana's arrest. And now you got it happening in Mexico City. Um, you're talking about someone at every step of the way, SK, who was so angry that a, an American, no less, uh, was getting over on her in her backyard uh, in her home country's court system. And it's, that's a weird thing to tell people because she's on record saying that. And it's, it's it, how far are people willing to go to perpetuate all this stuff when all you have to do is be a reasonable human being, a reasonable parent, reasonable mother, and find a compromise with someone that you, at one point, uh, were going to marry and you had a kid with. So, um, you know, to this day, so, yeah, I mean, Adriana gets arrested in March. Uh, the judge is seriously considering uh, not giving her bail because uh, she's the uh, she's absolutely the obvious flight risk that she is. Uh, but she also did not have a police record, so uh, you know they took that into consideration as well, uh, and they gave her the highest bail amount humanly possible, thinking there's no way that she's going to come up with that kind of money. And uh, three days. Uh, but uh, the husband paid the bail, and that is the last we have seen her, Sam, or anybody um, since. So you're talking, uh, you know, we're going on, we're going on five years. Uh, the one thing that scared us was when Adriana got bailed out of jail. She had a, uh, a public defender representing her in court, and uh, court-appointed lawyer, and uh, she. We found out. Uh, we found out. My lawyer was. You know, we have. We have. We had some pretty good contacts in the, in the court buildings, and they they introduced my attorney to this public uh, court appointed attorney. And uh, they, she's like, "That lady is a piece of work." Those were her exact words. And they're like, "Well, uh, you know, what can you tell us without jeopardizing your client's case?" She's like, "I guarantee you, she's not. She doesn't care about this case because as soon as she gets." You know, as soon as she gets done bailing out, she's she's gonna bail. She's leaving. She's getting out of here. Her first, her first, her first question to me was, as a client, wasn't how how do we beat the case. Her first question to her was, how do I get out of the country? Yeah, because in Mexico, if you get on bail, you gotta you gotta report to the court every week, and the court had made it pretty clear that she couldn't even leave the city. She had to get a job. She couldn't leave the city. Uh, she had to report every week um, until this thing was resolved. Otherwise, she was going to stay in jail until the, the whole case was resolved. And this is serious. So the first thing out of her mouth to her attorney was, how do, how do I get out of the country? The second thing they, 
that came out of her mouth was, uh, how do I adopt my daughter to my family? Right. And, and, and the, the, the lawyer was stunned. And the lawyer's like, you, you can't adopt your daughter out to your family. You can't adopt your daughter out to anybody because everybody knows who her father is. <laughs> and he's never going to agree to it. There's, I mean, she, and the, the lawyer said she was pretty matter of fact and said, you know, look, if you blow town, I can't help you. You know, I'm your best chance of getting out of this unscathed. Uh, your, the, the, the girl's dad does not seem like he's an unreasonable person if he's been dealing with you for these last, you know, back then it was eight years. And he doesn't seem unreasonable. Um, why can't you find, why, why, is, why can't you find common ground? And she said the same thing to her attorney. She told the judge, she's like, yeah, F him. And that was it. Never saw her again. I can only imagine the amount of pressure, pain, and turmoil you should have gone through through this whole situation. How did you cope with it, especially mentally, and kept yourself from going insane? That's a great question, you know, uh, that, and it's an important one in a lot of different aspects because when this was happening, this started, I mean, we're talking 2008, 2009, 2010, and that's when the uh, economic crisis hit the entire planet. So uh, not only was I hemorrhaging money uh, dealing with investigators and lawyers and, you know, the, all, all the above court costs and everything involved with that, uh, I was literally uh, working 18-hour days for almost two straight years just to keep uh, the lights on because the economy just... And talk about the ultimate monkey wrench. Um, and it was such a horrific time to to deal with a financial crisis. Then you got to deal with the domestic crisis at home. Uh, it did feel... It felt like... Uh, yeah, I, I didn't... I, I, I lost the... Li- Excuse me. I did lose hope uh, along the way. There was no uh, second guessing every move I made because time is not on your side. Um, you know, how do I squeeze more blood out of a turnip in terms of time? You know, eighteen hours of work, seven days a week for two years is a grind. Sleeping, two pots of coffee a day. My eating habits weren't good. Um, you know, uh, yeah, and I have met left behind parents who who. Uh, ended up taking their lives because of something like this, but that that never entered my mind. That that's not part of. Uh, that's not part of. I, there's no quit. There's no. To me, there's no such thing as quitting. You know. So when when something so heinous and so horrific happens, the only course of action you can take as a left behind parent is to make it right. You know. To me, quitting should never be an option until, until your kid is an adult and, and somehow you've been able to, you know, if they're able to run out the clock until Sam's 18, well, then they run out the clock until Sam's 18. I'm not quitting, right? Uh, You just never know what that one thing is that's going to help break the case open. Little did we know that court case in 2014, where they basically shot themselves in the foot, was the best and worst thing to happen in this case. Now, we got the entire legal system in Mexico on our side, and there's nothing that she could do about it. Now we have to go find her and finish it, but you know she she had every chance uh, to make things right, you know. But along the way, yeah, man, there were a lot of second guessing. Am I? Is this the best use of my time? I was 
so at one point I was so exhausted and in my I squeezed every ounce of adrenaline out of me I could. I ended up in the hospital. So this did take a physical toll on me. They I got treated for exhaustion and dehydration. Uh, I tell you, literally, I was drinking two pots of coffee a day. wasn't wasn't drinking enough water. wasn't eating good food. Uh, you know, the term stress eating should really mean that you're doing everything you can to to keep proper nutrition in your in your body. I was doing the exact opposite. You know, burritos, pizza. <laughs> two pots of coffee, <laughs> uh, anything to keep the engine running, you know, the, the term gas and go for a car is, is pretty appropriate because that's what I was doing to myself. Uh, slowly, uh, I gained a ton of weight. Uh, you know, one day I woke up in the and looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize what I was looking at. You know, um, at, at my peak, I, I was 277 pounds. And I, I usually walk around at like 220, 225. So yeah, I gained a lot of weight. It, it, it wasn't, it snuck. It, I'd be lying to you if I said it snuck up on me. I just didn't think I could, I, I couldn't waste a second on my health until I got a grasp of how's business going? Yeah, how do I get that under control because of those circumstances? And how do I get this case under control? Uh, which is backwards thinking, you know, when you hear it, because if I don't have my health, then I don't have the means to right the ship and keep the business afloat. And I don't have the means to make this thing right with, with Samantha and Adriana, you know? So I, I, I took my health seriously about a decade ago. I, I had a, um, an epiphany as I was, I was, uh, trying to get back to, to Southern California from Atlanta. And then my knees gave, my, one of my knees gave out at the airport in Atlanta. And then I had to go from Atlanta to Phoenix, catch the flight back to California. So, you know, uh, and that, that's when I said, okay, I, I need to, uh, I need to take a step back and, and I need to take better care of myself because let's say I do resolve all this next week and I'm reunited with Samantha next week. What kind of, uh, what kind of a dad and what, what kind of shape am I in to, to be able to, to deal with the things that I need to take care of her with, right? And so, yeah, I took, took my health pretty seriously. Um, that was a big thing. Uh, inside the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, there's a division there called Team Hope. And while my case with the National Center was closed, I, I made... I made some good relationships with people at Team Hope, and I would recommend that any parent in this position uh, get to know some people at Team Hope because most, if not all, of the, the members of Team Hope are volunteers. They're all left-behind parents. Uh, some of them have had successful outcomes in those cases. Others have not. Other parents are like myself, but I'm still trying to resolve situations. Um, the gentleman that I got to meet uh, he had a successful resolution in his case. Um, and he was a tremendous asset to me, not just from a tactical and strategy perspective, but just from how do you manage the stress of all this? Uh, how do you manage X, Y, and Z? And, the, and so, you know, when he got to understand that my routine was basically, uh, you know, uh, a hairline away from being batshit crazy, you know, he's like, you got to take time for yourself. You got to, you got to, 
you're not going to want to do it at first, but you got to live part of your life. If you have a hobby, you got to do something for you, you know, because you're, you're going to drive yourself nuts, you know? Um, and that, that was a lesson that he kept hammering into me for about two years uh, until finally <laughs> I, I dipped my toe in the water. I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I got, at this point, I hadn't had a vacation since this whole thing started. So I'm going to do a three-day weekend. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be on a computer. No email. No phone. No nothing. Um, hang out at the beach, do some surfing, and and just unplug. He's like, I don't want to hear from you till Monday. <laughs> and I'm like, tell me how it went on Monday. And so yeah, uh, that's what I did. And, and uh, you know, it it's but you go through these other scenarios where you see other kids with their parents on the beach, right? That kind of brings it back a little bit. But other than that, it was you, there is a lesson to be learned there. And parents in these situations do have to take care of themselves at any cost. It's okay to go on a vacation. It's okay to turn it off, and, and you'd be be surprised at how that uh, invigorates the mind. I got introduced to meditation uh, back then too, and I've been uh, 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 I've been practicing it like religion since because this the clutter in your head. I was so tired of waking up at 2 o'clock, 2.15 in the morning because I couldn't get my brain to stop, you know, because it's constantly wanting to work on the case. <laughs> and so if you, you don't have, yeah, you don't have an outlet for that, you can't calm your mind down, um, you know, that's all you got. You got time in your mind and your health. And that's, when you look at life, that's, that's, I mean, that's all you really have in life. I mean, you can't take it with you when this is over. So uh, do what you can to stay in the, in the fight, but also take care of yourself at the same time. So yeah, no, that, that I lost all the weight, uh, kept it off. In fact, I'm actually about 10 pounds lighter than I was uh, 10 years ago when all this started. So um, yeah, so yeah, I'm about, you know, I'm about 70 pounds from where I was. I mean, my, uh, the, the joke right now is would Sam even recognize you if she saw again. <laughs> right. So, you know, um, but it is, it's, it's vitally important. And I, I took advantage, I took, took it for granted. I took my health for granted. Uh, I certainly didn't take time for granted because I tried to squeeze as much as I could out of 24 hours as humanly possible, but wasn't necessarily doing the most efficient things uh, early on, you know, just keep your head down and grinding away is not the way to, way to do this. Seriously, I mean, take you gotta, it, just take a take a step back and exhale, and it's okay to do that, right? That's the uh, that's the first thing, yeah. And obviously, we talked about a lot of the tactical stuff. Uh, you know, the team stuff is important. All that is important. Um, I kept the best thing I think I've ever done. I, I even 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 though I knew in my mind I had to find the right people to surround myself with. The next best thing I did was kept, I kept a journal of this whole thing. Now, I did it for really, uh, I did it for one reason and one reason only, because I knew deep down, I, I know that I'm going to have to explain this to, to Samantha at some point, right? I don't know when. I don't know. I don't know anything else. I just, in my heart and in my mind and my gut's telling me, someone's got to explain this to her because I know. I told you about uh, how the court's video and auto record everything in Mexico. I guarantee you, uh, her mother's never going to let her see that stuff, but I will. You know, because now the journal will match everything that's 
in the court record and probably fill in some gaps at the same time. So the journal is just my day-to-day. And I'm having a conversation with Samantha uh, as things are happening in real time. And I, and I, I prefaced uh, the journal uh, about four or five years ago and, and made mention that I'm not changing a thing. I'm not changing the grammatical errors. I'm not changing um, the tone because uh, some of it gets kind of raw sometimes. This is how it was as it went down. And most of that journal, 90% of it was written on a BlackBerry or a smartphone. You know, uh, as I'm, you know, in, in Mexico, in line, in an airport, on a plane. Uh, and so there are going to be those, you know, I got the big thumbs thing going on, right? So there's, and I left it in there because... Uh, it's important that, that also the, the, that those things tell a story, even sometimes more so than the words. But the journal is so important because um, what you what you see on the blog right now is the journal. And the website probably isn't a bad idea too because um, it, it, you can. And the, the website was designed and built for one reason, one reason only, and that was for Samantha to find us, and she knows it's there. Um, her mother hates it because you know she's plastered all over it. The boyfriend, the husband, everybody involved with this from their standpoint hates it. Uh, but that's not our problem. Um, the site isn't there to out anybody. Um, you know, the site is there for Sam to do her own. You know, she wants to. You know how kids are you know, these days. They'll Google anything, right? So eventually, they're gonna, she's going to find it. She's going to be reunited with it. Should I say? I would love to know what are your thoughts when it comes to child abduction, especially to another country, and what can the government do to rectify these situations and help the parents compared to letting them suffer for years and even decades in some cases like yours? Yeah, that's such an awesome question. And I, it's a question that uh, I've been asking myself quite a bit uh, for the last 12 and a half years. And, and my answers in the beginning uh, Are, would, are definitely a lot different than my perspective on this now because I, 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 I didn't see the bigger picture back then because I was already eyeball deep into it. I was just trying to you know, prevent, prevent from myself from drowning in it. Um, government has an interesting role. We get a lot of flack in the United States and you'll hear the term, uh, you'll hear the term paper tiger thrown out about our, 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 our response to these kinds of cases parental abduction cases in particular. I, I understand the sentiment about paper tiger. I mean, we could, we're killing trees left and right, writing laws, but we're not, we're not doing anything to, uh, to enforce the laws. Um, it, you know, how many resources can a government throw at a situation where it's parental abductions and alienation cases are reaching, uh, no pun intended here, but they are reaching pandemic levels in terms of its, you know, severity, right? And, and tearing apart families and, and destroying kids' lives and all that. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I think the laws that they are writing and the stuff that the work that David Goldman did to, to be a change agent, is, is, is they're in the right place. They're, they're in the right line of thinking. Um, I get why the National Center's drinking the Hague Kool-Aid, right? Because it's That's all they have, really, when you think about it. Um, the onus is really up to the parents to be able to understand 
the differences between the legal system where you live, the legal system where your child was abducted, and, and the legal the legal makings of the country uh, where they might be now. Um, that's a big thing. I think as far as in, in my case, what I'd like to see the government do, and we have the power to do it. I think most uh, most countries on the planet have the power to do this. Uh, if you enforce and strictly enforce and, and, and promote equal parenting, um, you probably do prevent a lot of these cases and you got to have guidelines. And obviously there's the, you know, uh, the one-off scenarios where you're dealing with an actual parent who's been abused or maybe there was child abuse or whatnot. I'm not talking about those cases. I'm talking about cases like mine, cases like Enrique's, you know, uh, Sean Goldman and certainly Steve Fenton uh, would have loved to have had uh, been part of a conversation regarding equal parenting. Uh, you know, because the fathers are expected to um, pay into a system uh, but they're not really, what are they getting back in return? If they're being responsible, they love their kids, they want to be part of their kids' lives. Equal parenting has definitely got to be part of the dialogue. Uh, I also think the government could do a better job of, you can you can unjam your court system fairly easily if you make it a felony uh, to parents who, who file and make false accusations, false claims in court, uh, file false police reports. Uh, the, I mean, those things should be, those things, there shouldn't even be an excuse for that. That should be a felony. Uh, I mean, that, that we've seen parents, uh, I've seen stuff in the news recently where parents were, were doing prison time for, for making claims that I've had to deal with. Uh, you know, they're doing three, four years in prison for those, for those, for making those claims. So if you did that, I think if people took that seriously, um, and, you know, I think that would curb some of it. We'll curb all of it. Obviously not. We have, you know, uh, Adriana uh, is, is exhibit A. is just someone who just doesn't give a shit about any law or any court rendering whatsoever. They're, she's an anomaly. Probably she's more the exception than the rule. But I do think parents who think uh, they're using their kids as weapons don't really think of the consequences for themselves. And I think you can get to those people. Uh, you know, by, you know, yeah, relationships, relationships of all kinds are tough. You know, romantic relationships are tough. Friendships are tough. Family relationships are tough. Work relationships, they're all tough. It takes work to make that stuff happen. And you can't, you just can't, got to find ways not to, to let the kids fall through the cracks. If we could do that, you get responsible and rational people together to make uh, decisions for both sides, not just one side or the other. Then I think there might be an answer to you know stopping this once and for all. I mean, that's I can't see any other way. I I don't. David Goldman's situation was so unique and so different. Um, like I said, I, I don't know any other case where a country literally sanctioned another country financially to to bring an abducted child back. Um, uh, it was great politically for for the people in, in uh, David Goldman's neck of the woods. Um, because they accomplished a lot. Hillary Clinton got a lot of great press from it. Uh, but, you know, that's, it's never going to happen. It, and then, uh, so we got to find other ways to make that work. We, you can't enforce laws like the Hague laws because uh, other countries, while they might agree with the Hague and they like the idea of the Hague, uh, 
their system of justice weren't allowed to enforce it the way people think we should enforce it. So there, how do you get around that? That's, that's, that's the big question. Now my last question. I'm pretty sure that you will reunite with your daughter sooner or later as I can see that you are the path for that to happen. If anyone listening do know Sam, please ask her to listen to this. With that said, if she's listening, what is your message to her? I, uh, the first thing is, Sam, uh, dad is, has never forgotten about you. Uh, dad loves you tremendously. You, your daddy's little girl, no matter how tall you are, no matter how, how old you get, you know, uh, you're always going to be dad's little girl. I've, there isn't a moment I, there is not a moment that has gone by where I haven't thought about you and wondering what you're doing at this stage of your life. Um, I know this has been extremely difficult for you. I know you're, you've, I know you've got, you got questions. You've got a lot of questions and you should have a lot of questions. You should be angry. You should be frustrated. Um, I'm never going to take that away from you. Um, if you think back to our visits, you know, the times where uh, there were big gaps in the times that you've seen me and you would get frustrated and, and, and storm off in protest. But, you know, in a minute or two, you gave me the biggest hug and the biggest kiss in the world that you can give your dad, right? And so I know we'll get through this. Uh, I love you very much. I, uh, I can't wait to have ceviche on the beach with you again. Uh, you know, I can't wait to just sit and listen to how, what your perspective has been these last 12 years or plus or however long, longer this takes. Uh, I, I want to hear your, listen to your experiences. I want to learn how you coped. And if you're listening to a lot of these questions that I've been asked here, uh, you know, I, I'd love to learn how these questions affected you in your life because your story is important. In fact, I think your story is more important than mine, really. But I'm just, I'm just the conduit right now between me and you. And, uh, you know, I've never given up. I've never quit. Yeah, there might have been times I lost hope. It didn't last very long because all I had to do was, you know, look at, look at pictures of you that are sitting on the desk and on the walls. Um, and, you know, I go into the, into the gym and I see your, I still have the, I still have your little Jeep, your little electric Jeep and, uh, you probably more than likely can't fit into it, but it's still here and it still works. <laughs> so, um, we'll get through this. We'll get through this memo. We'll get through this. Um, yeah, I, 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 I just the other day I was listening to your, uh, old voicemails, uh, that your mom would have you leave for me when this all first started, uh, have them and saved them for you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm longing for the reunion, of course. Uh, I, I hope you're help, happy to, is, to the degree that you can be under these circumstances. Uh, obviously, I uh, hope you're healthy. I know you've got a lot of your dad's personality in me, which means that you, you'll never quit. You're, you're just as much of a, uh, a fighter and a competitor, just like your dad. And uh, you'll always be my girl, Sam. I love you. And uh, I will see you soon. All right. That is our conversation with Brian Desert. And if you guys are curious on his case and the recent developments, 
you guys can follow him on Twitter where he regularly updates about his current situation. His Twitter handle is mom kidnapped me and the link to his website is also in the show notes. I would like to remind everyone that our goal here is to share knowledge with you guys and show that you are not alone in this. With that said, if you need specific legal advice, please get your own independent advice from a qualified legal practitioner. If you're someone who got separated from your own parent and would like to find your parent again, please go to findmyparent.org and fill out your details. With the help of our smart algorithms and matching technology, we hope to help you find your alienated parent again. If you're part of an NGO or even a private company passionate about these topics, please reach out to us through the contact us page in findmyparent.org and we hope to work together with you. That's it for this week. Speak to you next week.